Welcome to What in the World, a project initiated by Hunger for Life International. Today's podcast is titled Genocide in the Middle East, and Jess will be interviewing Ben. So grab your headphones, sit back, relax, and listen as they talk about the ISIS genocide against the Yazidi people and how it has left them devastated today. Hi, and welcome back to another week of What in the World, a Hungry for Life podcast where we talk about all things global. Um, Here today, we have a special out-of-country guest who happens to be one of our former staff members from Hungry for Life. And here, zooming in from the Middle East, is our friend, Ben. Hi, Ben. Hello, hello. How are you doing tonight? Yeah, doing well, thanks. How about you? Good, we're good, we're good. Thanks for joining us. No, always happy. Yeah, I miss so that group. Do you do you miss us all? I do. Yeah. I do miss you all. <laughs> we miss you too. But we're happy no, that no. you <laughs> Some of us do. No, I'm just teasing you. Um, but we're happy to hear about what's happening in the Middle East and um, to shed some light on the situation that's been evolving over there and and just exactly kind of what you're involved in um, and the projects yeah. that Hungry for Life does. So, first off, I want to know your story. What is yours and Rachel's story, and how did you guys end up in the Middle East? That's uh, a loaded question for sure. Um, so I'll, I'll keep it brief, but ultimately, um, at a young age, I was really interested in what was happening in this neck of the woods, uh, and uh, just through some really great mentors and uh, pastoral care. Uh, I had the opportunity to come over here um, whenever I was in my 20s uh, into this region and spend about a year and a half doing an internship alongside some workers here that were plugging away and reaching into different communities. Um, and it was transforming for me, um, shaped the direction of the way in which I would go moving forward. So uh, I went into the trades. Uh, for me, that was a, a means to be able to be involved in livelihood projects, involved in training over here. And uh, yeah, after that, after a number of years in the trades and getting my ticket and everything like that, uh, we decided what, to figure out what was next uh, for us. And at that time, met and married Rachel. And the two of us were discerning together. She was already working at HFL. And she was. We miss her too. You guys miss her the most. We miss her sure. more. No, I'm just teasing. Yeah. No, no. Everyone does, for sure. <laughs> I get it. I do get it. But uh, yeah, so she and uh, Dave actually had a conversation, and uh, Dave said, Why don't you uh, ask if he wants to come in to her? So, so I did. I came in um, and I had a conversation with Dave just about what HFL was all about, um, kind of the scope of what was happening, and uh, decided, hey, you know what, I'll pray about it, see if I should come on staff, and uh, I did that, and I was pretty convinced I wasn't going to, um, but God has a pretty amazing way of working in our lives and encountered me in a big way, but one of the things I said to Dave uh, was you know what, my heart is for this neck of the woods here, uh, the Middle East, North Africa, and uh, you're currently not working there. And he, it, again, explained the model to me and just said, you know what, if you find 
a church, a business, a community group that wants to work in that region, by all means, we'll do, we'll do an assessment and I'd be happy to be there. So over the course of my time, uh, I found a group that wanted to be involved and, uh, it really led me to, um, do some deep assessment on some of the partners and the projects that were happening in this region. Um, and the more I learned, the more, yeah, my heart was just drawn and, uh, eventually ended up coming over here on an assessment trip. Um, and Rach followed me right after, and we spent some time praying over here, seeing everything and decided, yeah, you know what, this is where we're supposed to be. And, uh, it fits our skill sets and abilities and yeah. So it's a big step. It was a big step. Yeah. yeah and how long was, have you been uh, there? We have been here nine months now. So how's it been? Yeah, it's crazy. Again, another loaded question overall really well. Mm -hmm. Um, but also really tough. Um, parts of it have just been absolutely amazing. The community here, culture here, everything like that is just amazing. Always hard moving away from family for sure. And friends. Mm -hmm. Um, we, uh, We've been here in the midst of some significant events, uh, both in the community um, and our own lives. We ended up getting COVID pretty bad as well over here. So yeah, Ooh, that kicked tough. our butts. So, yeah, but overall, yeah, really, really good. That's good. I, I can't even imagine like going from a North American culture over to the Middle East. You're, you're doing what, 30, 40 hours of language studies? You were at least a week, right? Yeah. Like, yes. so our currently we're doing about 30 hours a week. Uh, that's our, that's our benchmark, our goal. Um, so 15 of that is formal study, uh, and then informal study conversation, all of that kind of stuff. So are you fluent? Yeah, by no means. No, by no means. Can you get by? Yeah. Uh, starting to be able to, yeah, we just actually did, uh, we just actually did a language assessment and Rachel and I both uh, scored better than we thought we would. So nice. yeah, we're pretty happy with that. Nice. Yeah. Oh, can't imagine. Um, okay. Jumping into the country a little bit. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a bit of a, a historical snapshot of where you guys are and kind of like what has put that country in the position that it's in right now? Mm -hmm. Can you give a, yeah, I would say since 2014. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say any longer than that. And we're here for a long time, but yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. As most of the world was aware around the end of 2013, beginning of 2014, we started to see the black flags of ISIS uh, and seeing some of the atrocities that were coming out of this region and the countries around here. Um, and Yeah just heartbreaking stories of as ISIS swept across countries, um, the, the atrocities that were committed, uh, the displacement, uh, the refugee crisis that was prompted as a result of what was happening there and in Syria. Um, it's, yeah, devastating. Um, when ISIS came through, uh, both Syria, Iraq, the region, um, they they carried with them uh, just 
uh, this destructive force that really captivated the world and brought all of our attention here, right? We were seeing, I remember seeing videos of monks on the beach in uh, or, or Egypt and seeing what was happening in Syria and Iraq and seeing what was happening to people groups, small minority people groups here, Christians, uh, Yazidi people, um, the Kurds coming up and fighting against ISIS. Like just, it brought our attention to this, re this region in a way that um, the world hadn't really acknowledged in the past. Um, and honestly, the crisis that was, that happened as a result of it, millions of people internally displaced, refugees, millions of refugees that were fleeing to wherever they could within the region and then all across Europe and, and eventually some of them making it to North America as well. And um, again, uh, specific minority groups, uh, think of the Yazidis, for example, uh, the Yazidi people group, they're, they're a group that ISIS deemed were devil worshippers, uh, and that's what their mantra was. And while the Christians were given the choice to either pay the tax or convert into Islam, um, the Yazidis weren't given any choice. And what happened to them, uh, ISIS systematically surrounded their villages uh, separated the men from the women, from the elderly, and the men and women, they lined up in guilt. And uh, the women and children, they took into captivity. And uh, over the course of the, the months that followed, that people group alone, there's still almost 2,900 people that are missing uh, and unaccounted for that were taken into captivity. 6,500 people in total were taken, uh, and that's uh, it's just crazy. They're not even sure the amount of people that were that were actually murdered. Uh, they're still finding mass graves, and it's it's devastating. Um, and all across this region, the story is the same. Um, and it's there's a lot of hurt and pain. Um, we're seven years on from 2014 now, mm -hmm. and we're, there's still massive amount of people in formal camps, internally displaced camps, refugee camps all across this region. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's devastating to see the long-term impacts, um, the dependency that's being built in the midst of this, the psychosocial impact that's happened suicide rates are on the rise now and we're seeing a spike in that and it's yeah it's a mess so so in 2014 isis kind of swept through and uh took out the yazidi people and all the other a bunch of other minority groups so for mm -hmm. those who managed to escape where did they go yeah um so Speaking to the Yazidi context alone, um, mm -hmm. there was a mountaintop, uh, and I remember seeing CNN images of all these people camped out on top of the mountaintop because uh, ISIS had chased them up there, and they were the lucky few that were able to escape uh, and seeing military drops of food and humanitarian supplies, and then eventually evac and the Pashmurga uh, from both Syria and Iraq 
surrounded and eventually held the position and helped the Yazidis get off the mountainside. Sorry, can you um, explain what the Pashmurga is? Yeah, so the Pashmurga, uh, there uh, depends on whose definition you're using, but uh, it's a military group of Kurdish people. So uh, there's several different groups of Pashmurga, uh, mm-hmm. but they're they're Kurdish people. Okay. So again, this region, everything that's happened in amongst the Kurds versus the Arabs, uh, it's there's a it's a complex history for sure. But mm-hmm. the Pashmurga are Kurdish only uh, military groups. So there's some in Syria, there's some in Iraq, there's some in Turkey as well. And they have been helping the Yazidis, right? Is that what you're saying? They've they've been helping like the, the Yazidis. The good guys. Christians. Okay. Yeah, they've been helping. They've been helping the vast majority. They're, they didn't discriminate. Okay. Um, and the Pashmurga were really the first uh, to be there uh, and thankfully backed by the coalition forces afterwards. But mm-hmm. uh, the Pashmurga really held the line uh, and stopped ISIS's advancement. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So what is the current, like what, what would be a typical living situation for the refugees today? Yeah, honestly, it depends. Um, so there is the vast majority that are in uh, formal camps, um, and Who runs there's these? a different. Who set them up? So the UN, UNHCR, uh, helps with the refugee camps um, in and around the region. So there's there's refugee camps in Jordan, Lebanon, Iraq, Syria, uh, Turkey. They're all they're all over the region. Um, and all over the world, really. Um, and now, over the course of time, there's, those are slowly transferred to national management as well, uh, who are able to manage and run the camps. Um, so there is a large population that live in camps. And the standards in a refugee camp, um, they're definitely, you're not like home um, by any means. There's There's food distribution points. There's um, shared sanitation facilities, uh, water collection points, all of these kind of things, and they're fenced communities as well. And those are the people that uh, live inside the formal camps, um, but there's informal settlements as well all over the region. Uh, some even just on the external fence line of the camps themselves. Uh, and these, uh, these informal settlements uh, receive far less uh, in terms of aid and humanitarian aid, uh, far less attention and far less aid. Um, so they rely a lot on family members that are in the camps. They rely on uh, the microeconomies within the the informal settlements and everything like that. Um, you see, the level is yeah is pretty dire in a lot of these informal settlements as well. Mm-hmm. It's the hand-me-downs, uh, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, and yeah. I'm, I'm really trying to paint uh, as, as vivid of a picture as we could get for our listeners of what it is exactly like for these refugees to be there. So they got forced out of their, their homes and their livelihoods, and the only place that most of these people could go are these refugee camps. And what do they... What do they, how do they start life again? Like what's the next step for them? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, uh, that's the question that is still continuing to be asked. So refugee camps are one thing. Uh, they're definitely, they're more permanent. Uh, and the structures are often larger um, because refugees are someone that have come from another country mm -hmm. uh, because of war, because of persecution. For these reasons, uh, there's there's the mentality that they won't be going back as quickly. Whereas the IDP camps, so internally displaced people camps, uh, they're temporary settlements. Um, a lot of the IDP camps in the region, uh, they're tents, uh, they're fabric tents, uh, or like portable buildings, depends on just the style of camp that's constructed. Um, but they're meant to be exactly that very temporary, until the situation improves enough that these people can return home. But that's the thing, we're seven years on for a lot of people in the regions. And uh, there still remains a vast amount of people in these camps seven years of living door to door with, for all intents and purposes, curtains between you and your neighbors. Uh, and UN determines the size of and the amount of people that can actually be in a, in a shelter. So one tent, which is a four by four meter concrete pad, uh, that you can have as much as eight people within wow. one shelter. And I mean, it depends on the construct of your family, but uh, that can be mother, father, and six kids. That can be grandma, grandpa, mom, dad, and four kids. Like it can just, once your family size is more than eight, technically it should be eight or more, um, then you get a secondary tent. But again, we're looking at tents or caravans. Um, a lot of these camps have shared sanitation facilities. So you're sharing washrooms and a lot of the population sizes within these camps are 10,000, 12,000, 14,000 people. Uh, so yeah, it's the management needs to be uh, pristine to be able to make these things run well and effective. And I will say we've seen uh, some beautiful pictures of well-caring management in the midst of it. Um, but still, there there remains this, you don't have four walls to call your own. You don't even have a bathroom facility or a washing facility. Mm -hmm. There's always a level of security that's lacking whenever you're inside a tent. And, and then informal shelters are even worse, right? Uh, often they don't have latrines. Often they don't have any kind of assistance or food programming or anything like that. So, mm. yeah. And I know you have spent um, a good chunk of time in these camps, right? Mm -hmm. What are some of the stories that come out of them? Like, have you been able to sit down with some people and, and hear about what their experience has been like um, getting displaced by ISIS and like are a lot of them still searching for family members or like what are some what are some of the stories that have come out of there if you I'm putting you on the spot if you can think of any no no yeah uh yeah there's there's it's it's really hard sitting and listening to the stories um and uh, it should be hard. Um, and I never want to get to the position where it's actually not difficult um, because the stories are heartbreaking. Uh, what we've 
our mentality has really been to uh, to build relationship and earn trust. Uh, our desire is not to just go in and, hey, tell me your stories so that we can get funding and help you. Uh, it's been really to just build relationships. Um, so and those are in the formal and the informal camps. Um, and yeah, God has been good as we've been in the midst of it. Um, and we have built some some really amazing relationships. Uh, and with that comes hearing their stories. Um, so one of one of the guys, uh, we had a work project here and we're doing a cash for work program. Um, and over the course of the time, just working shoulder to shoulder with some of these guys carrying blocks, these kind of things, uh, they start to open up and, and tell a little bit about their life and uh, sat down with one guy and uh, he was just sharing that yeah, he was actually captured by Dash ISIS. Um, and over the course of time, like you just see tears well up in this grown man's eyes. And as he's telling the story of, yeah, being overrun, uh, he was a border guard and got overrun. Their position got overrun uh, and they fought until they didn't have any ammunition left. Um, and then ISIS came through took them into captivity, beat them, shot them, um, and eventually um, got to the point where uh, they would segregate people based on their class or affluence. Uh, and he just happened to have a rank that they deemed, you know what, we can actually probably ransom this guy off. And uh, contacted his family, contact, who then contacted their immediate community. Um, and ended up he's one of the lucky ones that ended up being able to lucky ones uh come back from captivity but it came at the cost of sixty thousand us dollars wow. uh which is just more than anyone can even fathom uh and so now not only is he living through the trauma of being captured and all that goes through that uh, but he's also got this insurmountable debt to the community that he feels obligated to pay back um and he's living in a temporary shelter in a camp and has no sustainable income, has no daily means of employment. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a, a tough situation. Um, listening to, there's still some stories uh, when we came here on our assessment trip originally. And um, there was one story that stood out to me that I still haven't shared. Uh, just because of the level, um, like Rachel doesn't even know it, um, mm -hmm. all the details, just because of um, just the brutality, the uh, the sheer evil that happened uh, over the course of it. But women that were taken captive and uh, sold to ISIS members who would use and abuse them for a short period of time and then sell them on to the next ISIS fighter. Um, and we've sat with families who have managed to have their daughters, uh, their sisters rescued, uh, who have been sold and bought 14 times over the course of their captivity over seven years. And it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's no other words, heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah and um, you actually pointed out a good book for me to read, which I did. I finished it so fast because it was it was just too intense to put down. It was called The Last Girl. Um, mm -hmm. 
and it, it's written by a survivor of mm-hmm. being sold into, yeah, to the ISIS fighters. And I highly recommend it. If anyone wants to get a really good understanding and a good picture of exactly what these girls specifically went through, um, the last girl, look, look it up, read it. By Nadia Murad. Yeah. 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 And it's, yeah, it's, I put a disclaimer on that. It's, it's a powerful book to read. And I was like you, I, I didn't stop reading it. Um, but it's, it's heavy, uh, and it should rock you Mm -hmm. to your core. And if it doesn't, I think you need to have a conversation with someone. (laughs) Uh, yes. Um, but what that book, that book kind of brought to light for me was that, um, like the cultural aspect of, of what happened to these girls, like uh, so much shame is now associated with that. Like the girl's story, Nadia, mm. she was like, she had people saying like, after she escaped, people said like, are you sure you want to go back? Are you sure that you feel safe with your own family? Because, because of what had happened to her, uh, to no fault of her own, suddenly she was deemed... Mm unvaluable or um i i think you you could probably word it better but like there's a whole deeper level of of culture that comes along with that and shame that comes along with that that now all these people are dealing with so so many physical um things that are taken away from them but then there's the whole mental aspect of it too Mm -hmm. and like i don't know i don't know how you can it's going to be so hard for these people to recover from that. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's why it's, it's good to sit here and talk to you about it and bring to light all these different stories and these different issues, um, just to open up what's happening in the world. But yeah. Any other stories that you have from, from, um, sitting down with people? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you're right. I mean, the idea of the the level of trauma that many of these women have gone through, but also the community in general as well. Um, there's there's those that uh, when we first got here, we had to kind of understand the the lingo or the jargon that was being used. But uh, the term survivor. Uh, we would use as most of the people that survived the genocide or survived ISIS moving across here, we would call them all survivors, but no survivor here is, is reserved for those that have come back from captivity. Mm. Um, and there is, I'm happy to say there is uh, a bit of a mind shift, uh, but there is still a deep amount of shame. There is still a label that's attached to, these women and men that have come back. Um, and it's, it is, it is a challenge. I mean, the hardest thing in the midst of it too, is there, while there's all sorts of organizations doing amazing things, uh, there's still a lack of, a lack of, uh, being able to care for everyone. Mm -hmm. I would say there's a lack of hope as well. Um, and I, in the midst of this, I mean, we're seeing people succumb to, to suicide, to, to all of these thoughts of I'm, I'm not enough anymore. Um, and I will never recover from this. And in the midst of that, 
um, uh, we get to work really closely with some amazing partners here uh, who are who are really just speaking into that, um, who are bringing these girls into a safe environment, giving them space to be able to process through some of that trauma, um, giving them some practical skills to be able to use over the course of their time together, um, but really just opening the floor to be able to allow them to share. Um, and it's not forced upon them. I mean, some of these girls that come into these programs are, they, they won't share ever. Um, and, and that's entirely their choice. And there's, there's, they want to respect that. They don't want to push them beyond where they're willing to go, but, uh, they make themselves available in that space. And, uh, some of the breakthroughs that are coming out of this center is just uh, amazing to see. Um, and some of the questions that are being asked too, why do you care about us so much? Why do you love us so much? Uh, and that, that is, I mean, we all know the answer. Uh, we were first loved so that we can love you. And the only reason why we can love you so well is because we were first loved by our savior. But um, having those kind of conversations need to be gentle and cautious and all of that in this, this region for sure. Um, mm -hmm. And, and that's not the point of it. The point is it is to really just show that love and care. Um, and yeah, just to see some of the, the transformations that are coming out of that, seeing some of the hope that's instilled in the lives of some of these girls uh, is, is really amazing. And then also some of the, the breakthroughs that have come. I mean, in 2014, uh, in the safe areas in this region, uh, NGOs, IOs, they all flocked here. Um, and, and a lot of them are situated in a way to respond to disaster. Uh, so they provide services and they do it really well for a short period of time. Um, and others just uh, moved out of compassion, moved out of a, a, a good heart. Um, but the longevity of a lot of these uh, are, are, I mean, they lack longevity, I should say. Uh, and now to see, to work alongside a partner that's local here, uh, who Hungry for Life works for, who has been consistent, who has met them as they were coming, uh, who met them on the road with food and water and just embrace uh, and has continued to care uh, all the way through, um, just being diligent and showing up. Uh, some of that looks like food distributions. Some of that looks like uh, winterization of camps uh, and helping them get through the coldest months. But a lot of it is just being there and being in relationship. Um, and it's, it's amazing to see um, the respect and the love, the mutual love that's shared there. Uh, it's a beautiful thing for sure. So what would you say is the biggest need that you see currently? Like how can, like, I'm already thinking like, oh, I just want to go. I just want to help. Like if, if other people are thinking that, like what's the best way to get involved? Yeah, it, it's a it's a complex situation for sure. Uh, mm. I mean, like I said, a lot of those NGOs, a lot of those IOs uh, have now pulled out. Uh, so there's, there's a huge vacuum of um, lack of funding uh, in the midst of this. Now we're seven years on. Uh, and I would argue that we're still in a crisis position. Uh, okay. 
that there is still the basic humanitarian needs, food, uh, latrines, infrastructure projects, all of that moves into development for sure. But uh, the actual food and shelter for a lot of these families, uh, warm blankets, we're going to move into winter here. And it actually does get cold in this region at night. Okay. Uh, so kerosene, these kind of things, they're all important. Um, but like we said, as we move into the development phase, um, for people to be able to return home, uh, they need the infrastructure to be able to return to. They need the safety and security, and that's something that we can't offer, uh, and we need government assistance in that. But uh, beyond that, we also need the infrastructure to be able to respond to. Um, and now we're moving into this phase seven years on where uh, a lot of people uh, no longer have the skills that they once possessed. Uh, the, the market, uh, the workforce is saturated already. Uh, so there's a lot of retraining of skills that is required uh, or, yeah, retraining for to enter into a new workforce mm -hmm. uh, or retraining because their skills have been dormant for the last seven, eight years. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. And we could, we can definitely post a link when, when we post this podcast, we can post a link of where people can give financially if they feel so inclined. Um, but a question that I'm wondering is, is, is ISIS still a threat? Like where did they, where did they go? Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great question. Um, uh, short answer is yes. Um, and no, um, <laughs> geographically, territorially, uh, ISIS has officially been defeated, uh, okay. and were defeated in 2015. Okay. Um, and a lot of people thought, okay, at that point we're done. But, uh, um, in this region, uh, there is a lot of different forces, uh, Syria, Iraq, Turkey, there's a lot of conflict that's happening internally that was there before and has just continued now. Everyone kind of rallied around uh, and came together to fight the enemy, Daesh, ISIS. Right. Um, but now that they've been territorially defeated, uh, some of those existing conflicts have, have bubbled up again. So that's given uh, ISIS the opportunity to be able to move uh, around mm. for sure. Um, what about the situation yeah. in Afghanistan? Like, um, mm. is that, does that kind of trigger anything for, for the Yazidi people? Is it threatening? Is it, uh, I know it's the Taliban, but maybe you can shed some light on that. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the minorities that we work with here, um, Christians, Yazidis, we work with Arabs as well. We work with uh, Muslim background as well. So we, we work across the board uh, and everyone uh, in this region uh, collectively turned and looked at the news and what was happening in Afghanistan. Uh, and it triggered all sorts of trauma for them. Uh, just how quickly uh, the Taliban moved across Afghanistan is very reminiscent of how quickly ISIS moved across this region. Um, and also just the, the 20 years of occupation of the US and coalition forces in Afghanistan, uh, how many billions of dollars in weaponry and all of this that were, that were there and training. Um, 
And yet, uh, as soon as the coalition forces pulled out, uh, all of that not only were, and I won't speak in broad terms, but uh, it, in the blink of an eye, uh, the enemy mm -hmm. was once again exactly where they were 20 years previous. Yeah. Uh, and, and some would argue stronger. Uh, so a lot of people started asking coalition forces uh, across this region. I mean, there's bases all around here um, about what's, what is your plan? Don't leave us like you did there. Right. Um, and, and it's, yeah, there's, there's a level, there's a huge weight of fear as well that, that sits here for sure. Yeah, I can't imagine. Um, and just starting to wrap it up here a little bit, like how how can we here uh, support you, Ben and Rachel? Yeah. Uh, thank you for that question. Uh, honestly, um, yeah, just continue to be praying for us for sure. Um, we're, we uh, have an amazing community that surrounds us and we're so grateful for that. Um, and um yeah ultimately we know that you know, god sustains us in the midst of everything that we do here um but yeah there are days especially hearing some of these stories and and seeing the overwhelming needs here uh where it's just yeah prayer is prayer is huge um support financially of course uh helps keep us here on the ground but mm -hmm. uh i will say um, it is a joy and a privilege to be able to work alongside HFL's partner here uh, and just see, um, yeah, just what an incredible man uh, and wife. Uh, the whole family is just amazing, really. Um, uh, and just how they continue to honor, respect, uh, show love, kindness, compassion in the midst of this uh they need help though honestly uh they do uh we have some amazing partners through hfl that have been helping with uh food distributions uh and winterization uh in some of the more uh remote villages all of this um and it's it's a huge blessing for sure uh like i said a lot of the ngos a lot of the organizations have pulled out of here uh, and what started with uh, huge, massive programs has really shrunk. And it's been hard to be able to see who, with lack of resources, where are we able to help? Uh, and our partner here is, as it's been, it's been a difficult season for sure. Uh, so so continue to support him. When you say support him, do you mean come there? Do you mean, yeah. do you mean, uh, like feet on the ground or money in the bank or both? Both. All right. Both. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I know there's a preconception about this region uh, and coming here. Um, and there's, there's a level of fear that's associated. Um, and some of that is, is based on reality for sure. Um, but there is, there is a large degree of it that's, that's misplaced as well. Um, so coming here, 
uh, seeing being united uh, for them to be able to see that, hey, you know what? There's people that love and care for you in North America that, yeah, they they support financially for sure, but they actually really want to come and meet you and love you and just build relationship with you. Uh, that means a lot to the communities that we're helping, but it means a lot to our partner here as well. Um, and so, yeah, boots on the ground for sure. Uh, okay. Boots on the ground is kind of a controversial term here. So we'll, we'll say, <laughs> okay. please come and, and enjoy and be in partnership. Um, Sounds good. But also, yeah, financially for sure. Um, there's there is a large lack of funding now, which, uh, like I said, the needs are are massive and it's crazy. They estimate just to deal with uh, the displacement alone, so the infrastructure and being able to allow people to move back to their homes, there's an estimated twenty three billion dollars needed uh, for okay. that. Can so try to chip away at that, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, twenty-three it's, billion dollars, no big deal. Okay, no big deal. <laughs> Come on, HFL. <laughs> We're a little but small no, for that. Honestly, though, um, that I say that figure to just show the overwhelming needs uh, in the community. So, yeah. um, to be able to be here, that's to end displacement. Uh, that's not even talking about the ongoing humanitarian needs, the the basic necessities of life that are required. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's ongoing for sure. Okay. Well, thank you for uh, shedding some light on your situation in the Middle East. Obviously, we've been very sensitive in, in our terminology here. So um, if you want to know more, feel free to connect with us at Hungry for Life. You know where to find us. And Ben, thanks again for taking the time out of your evening to speak to us today we no. really appreciate it thanks for having me on it's uh it's an honor and i i do uh before i go i do want to say thank you uh thank you for hfl i a lot of people ask ah do you miss it i do i honestly do it's an incredible staff uh people that are absolutely sold out for the mission that god has put in their call and their lives and um and the work that's ongoing through the partners uh, is just incredible. So yeah, thanks for the honor of being a part of this organization and thanks for uh, keeping me in the family. <laughs> uh, once you're, once you work here, you can't ever leave really, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, well, we appreciate your partnership too. So goes both ways. And we, that is all we have for today. So thanks again for tuning in and goodbye. Thanks for listening to What in the World, where we seek to educate and inspire. Here at Hungry for Life, we are passionate about your group having a global impact and eradicating needless suffering. For more information, head over to our website at hungryforlife.org. And you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and wherever you may listen to podcasts. Tune in every other week for another conversation about what is happening at Hungry for Life.